Hello and welcome to another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm your host. Joined my by my blue collar badass because you know we made it happen after a long time away. What it yeah, feels yeah. like. <laughs> it, it is. It's been another month almost, I think. But it's good to be back on, man. Everybody's busy. People get that shit. It's that time of year. Yeah, man. I uh this week went to so I left Monday. Like afternoon, went to Chicago for some big meetings and then had my meetings, had my flight scheduled to leave at like 9 p.m. Everything got done early. Like, and, you know, the guys that I were was with, they had to go back to the office and put out fires. And I'm like, okay, well, all right. I didn't know what we were doing. I just left my calendar open to be here with you guys because I'm here, right? Like, I don't need to go and have four other meetings. Like, this was dedicated for you and whatever came out of it. Like, if we went to, golf or dinner or whatever like i'm here um so that all finished early went to back to the airport hopped the earlier flight made the joke when i was standing in line you know like yeah it's great to get me on an earlier flight so long as i don't get stranded in denver and then uh there were thunderstorms <laughs> over denver that uh shut the airport down for like a couple hours so we had to divert and uh we actually coming into denver from chicago we ended up like as soon as we crossed the colorado border ended up going up into wyoming and our pilot came on he's like so if you're looking at a flight tracker we're over wyoming right now and it's like huh that's not denver uh but diverted down to like looking out the plane i could look up out the window and i saw the edge of the thunderstorm that we were going on so we were wow. between the Rockies in downtown and we literally skirted just straight down the storm uh, to land in Colorado Springs and then get fuel and wait wow. for the airport to open back up. So it was, it was kind of cool. Like you look out the window and I couldn't really get a good picture of it, but you look like straight up and it's like, yep, I can see a sliver of blue sky and we're just edging the, the storm. <laughs> That's pretty neat. So it, you had to go then from Colorado Springs back to Denver. Yeah. It's like a 20 minute flight, you know? Okay. It took us as long to taxi as it did to fly. Yeah, I was, was going to say is Colorado Springs, is a dinky little regional. Uh, kind of, sort of. So it's the military bit. It's the air force base there. Okay. So, I mean, they land C one thirties and big ass planes on it. Like there were four C one thirties. And I think there was a, uh c17 even sitting out there so the the big big jet boy well, they got uh, some runway space they got plenty of runway space but the the guy that came in the you know who's worked for southwest and maintenance he's like so this is an active taxiway and on the other side of that is an active military base so do not leave the plane <laughs> <laughs> you will be shot on sight <laughs> didn't say that but it was basically inferred you know yeah. <laughs> do not do not leave i mean but it just goes to show me like you know travel you know in the season people forward it's like well what are you gonna do it's a thunderstorm you know and it was rough even just skirting it um like we moved a lot and you couldn't even see the like part of downtown denver it was so black as oh. we flew flew across so it uh glad we didn't have to fly through that yeah no shit <laughs> it's been crazy weather out here too man it's been really really hot and humid um tuesday night 
not that this, you know, rivals getting stuck in an airplane in a thunderstorm, but I was in my hot tub when it came through. <laughs> All of a sudden it was, it was like nice blue skies. And then just like somebody flipped a switch, it was dark and just pouring, pouring rain. And I rode it out like a, like a trooper, man. I, I was proud of myself. I didn't get out and run. It lasted for, you know, 10, 15 minutes and then blue skies came back out and <laughs> you're already just, wet. Yeah, you know. that's what I thought, right? Until I see the flash, I'm not running. <laughs> <laughs> Just hope it doesn't hit your hot tub, right? Yeah, you know, if it does, hopefully it's quick. <laughs> but then uh, I went golfing this morning, like I was saying, and, and it was uh, brutal. Like 91 degrees in the shade, you know, 100% humidity, just just sticky. It was it was fun still, you know, it was, it was good to get out there, but it was uh, not the most comfortable weather to be in. Man, this is, I mean, yeah, we've been hot. Like last week was like 105 and uh, one of my buddies who lives down in LA and he loves the heat in the desert. He was up in Sacramento last week for some meetings and uh, he was like, bro, this, this is no good. You know, it's like 105. <laughs> Then he was in Phoenix and it was like 113. He's like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't go outside. You know, that's, uh, it's just, it's otherworldly, uh, heat, you know, and we're hot and dry. So it's just like a blast furnace when you go outside versus your, you know, swamp. Right. When, right. When you step out there, but, um, brings up a good point, man, is, uh, so the guy that I actually had meetings with in Chicago, meeting with, you know, multi billion dollar construction company was, he he made that acquaintance through golf. Uh, joined a country club like a year ago. I think he, you know, had done business you know, adjacently with them for years and that kind of stuff. And but really, it was getting in and golfing. And actually, the um, two main people who got us the meeting, they just got promoted uh, to vice president in the company, and their gift for. Uh, becoming VPs and then partners in the firm as well, uh, or four days at Pebble beach. That's, wow. uh, that was their, their gift, uh, you know, is to, for their promotion. So, uh, golf is, a you know, as a not golfer, I could hack my way through it, you know, if I needed to, uh, one of those things that I think gets underlooked often for a good way to do uh business development and especially at some of the nicer uh country clubs that are out there especially in you know in detroit and in you know in chicago and or the suburbs of chicago for uh this guy and you know that are out and around some of those nicer country clubs are a great way to do business development well they are because they're they're chock full of people who by and large you know are are better off right? They're, they're well-to-do people typically, which, which, you know, there, there's a lot of business owners or a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and it's, it's kind of like just a mastermind, right? You, you want to be around people that are of that caliber of where you're trying to get to, or where you're trying to talk, you know, what circles you're trying to talk to or whatever it is. It's, it's a good place to find those people. There's a lot of assholes, um, you know, but one of the things I've come to learn, and you know, you mentioned you hacking your way through around, I am by no means a good golfer, but what I've, what I've recognized is most people are shit golfers. Even the guy, it doesn't matter how nice their clubs are, how fancy their clothes are, what, you know, how many thousands of dollars a month their country club is. Most people suck at golf. And once you learn that, like, then it's just fun. 
Like, okay, well, none of us are, are going for our PGA card, right? We all have real lives. We have real projects and real jobs. So once you get past that part, then, then it can just be a, a good, it's a good learning experience and it's a good bonding, right? You get, you know, two to four hours of undivided attention with, you know, one to three other people. Yeah. You need to be functional, right? Like this is, you can't be effing terrible, but <laughs> you can't be uh need lawn maintenance after you're done. You know, like that's, that's probably the big thing, right? Like you got to be functional. You got to know how to swing and etiquette, right? All the basics and not completely, you know, suck. But once you get past that to where, even if you shoot 90, that's fine. Um, you know, you just can't be, you can't hold anybody up and you can't completely suck. Well, that's just it. It's the time factor because it's already going to take a lot of time to golf. Like we've talked about this before. It, it takes a shit ton of time to play around a golf. So you can't be the guy that is constantly looking for that last, you know, your, your namesake ball with your, your initials on it or some shit. Like once that thing gets into the bushes, fucking walk away. They make more every day in China. They are not that expensive. Just leave it and and move on. And people respect that. Right. And if you, if you're whacking and chopping through and all of a sudden you're at, you know, six, seven, eight strokes on one hole, pick the shit up and move on to the next one, man. And no one thinks bad about you. They they'll congratulate you. Like, Hey, I'm glad we're not waiting for another 15 minutes while dipshit here, you know, <laughs> refuses to throw in the towel and has to get his own ball into the cup. Yeah. And even one of the guys was like, yeah, I took a, took a client out and, you know, he landed in the, in the rough behind a tree. He's like, and this doesn't look good. Kicks it 15 feet out in the fairway. Yeah. That looks real good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that too, man. It, you know, it, it depends on what you're doing. I, I go golfing with my brother-in-law once in a while. I golfed with him on his league last year and it was real eye-opening. Like, you know, I'm of the mindset where if, if I'm within, you know, three, four feet of the cup, like I'm picking that shit up most days. <laughs> I did that with them and they were like, bro, we, we only let you pick it up if it's within your, your grip distance away. I'm like, are you, you gotta be kidding me. Right. <laughs> they weren't kidding. They were like appalled. I'm like, okay. When in Rome, I'll, I'll put this one out. <laughs> yeah. That's not a gimme. You know, it's like, am I on the green? Is that a gimme? You know? Right. Right. <laughs> I can see the hole. We're good. Let's go. Next one. <laughs> Uh, what else is going on, man? Um, frankly, I'm in like this weird, I don't, I don't know if it's a new stage in life or a new enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, but I have been in this marketing group for like a year and in there it's so, so well run. The guy who does it is super detailed. His depth of knowledge is high. And it's like hard to take it in. And he's gotten all these questions over the you know year that I've been in it. Um, and he, so every Thursday there's like a two to four hour call on marketing, psychology, mindset, like how to do all this stuff, how to sell things and all that right in the in marketing. He also does another like two to three hour call uh, with a higher level group. And then another point in the week he does like they call him fast feedback where he's sitting in like restructuring and rewriting all these people's like offers and all their sales letters and all this stuff live and it kicks everyone's ass like the dude is phenomenal 
but in that, like the question becomes like, man, it's so overwhelming. Like I'm, I'm trying to like figure out how to use this stuff and get to an outcome. Right. And everybody's so outcome driven and like, okay, I'm going to read, read this book. Right. Like I got, you know, tribes by Seth Godin here, or I got a bunch of Seth Godin books or, you know, like, uh, Donald Miller stuff and how to grow your small business or, you know, marketing made simple or whatever, right. You're looking for an outcome. Like, okay, I'm looking for a thing to do that, to use immediately in my business. And while that's all well and good, it, it creates like tiredness basically. And you trying to always search and find something and you're doing that consciously. Like, what do I need to get out of this book? Versus when you flip that paradigm to like, I just want to read this because it's interesting, right? Like I'm reading, uh, if I read a biography or anything like that, that I have here on the shelf, like I'm not learning or I'm not reading that to get anything out of it necessarily other than my own like enjoyment and to learn to learn, right? Like I'm learning just for the sake of it. And when you flip that consciously, you never have, like, you're not, wasting energy on trying to find something to fix something, right? Like you'll have ideas that'll flow to you in the learning process, but you're never trying to just like, oh, I need to read this, you know, sales book to figure out how to sell more shit. Right. And then, so when you, you go and you flip all of your frame of reference, right? Like whether you read five rings or all these other books, that are out there or that, you know, we've recommended, or you just listen to a ton of podcasts or you listen to everybody. And some of that, you know, I refrain from and listening to everybody, like figure out who you need to listen to and then just listen to a shit ton of them. But in that you then it's some of this is having faith in your subconscious and who you are as a person to allow you to then execute when the moment strikes, right? When you sit down to write that sales letter, to write that marketing material, to write that standard operating procedure, to write that thing or to give that presentation. Now, most of you do need to practice speaking for sure. Like I've mentioned this before, most of you are really bad at it. So you do need to practice and get those reps in. But in the majority of scenarios, like in a client call, in a client conversation, in an update meeting, in a job walk, right? In your normal day-to-day -day life, right? Outside of a presentation or like high stakes meeting, those you should still prep for and do that consciously as well. <laughs> but like most of your day-to-day -day stuff, like you do it because you, and you can do it well because you've been doing it for so long. And so a lot of the learning and education pieces is learn to learn. And then whenever you need that information, it will come to you. Like you will be able to recall most of that. It might not be perfect and it won't be perfect in your memorization of it or recall of it, but you'll be able to have those conversations that you wouldn't have had before. And you're not going to be so tired in all of your education and learning that it'll be fun still for you. Like you'll still enjoy like reading and finding new things. And just because you're not going to apply it immediately doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And I think we've lost the, or we're always trying to have an outcome in our reading and our education when basically because that's how school's always been as an outcome driven basis, when you remove that and you just amass this large body of knowledge, I, learning starting to be like fun for me. And now I got to like find other books and biographies, <laughs> shit to read. But <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you, you kind of nailed it with that. 
when you when you realize that there's not a test at the end of the game, right? You're, you're not you're not studying for an exam. Um, it becomes more intrinsic. It becomes more of a, a joyful thing to do if that's if that's the way to put it. Um, for for example, I just spent you you actually turned me on to the show, the Sean Ryan podcast. Um, man, I listened to the Dr. Stephen Greer episode. Now, for those of you who don't know, this show is like goddamn almost three hours long, right? It's two hours and 45 minutes or something. It, it's an investment. Um, but it was captivating to the point where I went and watched the guy's newest biography. Well, most of it. Um, I, I it, you should go check it out. I'm not going to spoil it, but like some of the stuff this dude talks about, uh, Dr. Greer specifically, like it's life-changing shit. Um, but it's just adding to that knowledge bank, right? And it's it's how you grow as a person so that when you are in those situations, the the bullshit that comes seeping out is not just bullshit, right? You're you're pulling you're pulling back on memories, you're pulling back on little tidbits and, and bits and bites of data that you've stored over the years that you know your your head, your brain can then process in a in an effective manner. But until you recognize that you're able to do that, then I think I think that's why most people don't read, right? Lots of people don't ever read a book after high school because it's still that mentality of, well, this is work. This is, you know, I'm not taking any more exams. I'm done with school. I don't have to do this shit. And that's just the wrong way to look at it. So as an example, uh, in the presentation that we had, which really ended up just being more of a conversation with the client and their project managers, we did as a lunch and learn, came in, didn't like really present anything, just had an open dialogue and discussion. And because of like myself and the other guys that I was presenting with, because of our body of knowledge, we can easily have these conversations, right? Like I can easily answer their questions. And so one project manager was having questions on some of his projects as it related to lighting, electrical, all this stuff. And you know, he got to talking about it. And I remembered when we went around the room, what types of projects he was doing. And I'm like, so are you referring to like clean rooms and doing clean room stuff? Well, here's the like three things that you need to know when it comes to clean rooms. Here's how, you know, lighting in particular affects everything in those rooms. Here's the other things you need to know about like sealing them and pressures and everything else. I haven't touched a clean room in a decade. Like, but I can pull all of that knowledge and experience and I've walked through them. I've been in them. I've cracked ceilings in them, you know, like all some of the stuff you shouldn't do, but, um, you, like I've done those things and can have that conversation from experience. And then also from just a huge depth of knowledge in, you know, designing these spaces, walking through them having the, you know, conversations with plant owners, like all that kind of stuff that these guys that we were talking to, I mean, they have experience. They just don't have it from the design side. Well, and that's why, that's why you're successful, right? That's why they're going to end up signing with you because you can bring that missing element. And that's what people look for because we can't all do everything. And that's a, it's a good thing to learn early on in your career that you're never going to have everything to everyone. That's, that's why you work in teams. That's why we, you know, have teams. Otherwise everyone would be out there as, you know, lone wolf badasses and, and doing everything. It's not possible. So if you can fill that void for somebody that that's business one-on-one right there. 
And the thing too, and, and we went in with this attitude as well is, you know, again, very large company, these project managers make decisions for the company, for their projects, you know, they make buying decisions, they get rewarded for it. But in that is they don't know, right? They don't know everything in what's going on. Some of these guys, you know, they're like interns in the room and, you know, some of them ask pretty good questions. And so some of them are just new and, you know, we were there to educate more than anything. Like, Hey, here's how electrical design works, you know? And I start going down, like, you know, making fun of my architects, like normal in, uh, well, like, especially in the lighting world for electrical, right? Like we went down the VE path, right? Power systems don't get VE, you know, fire alarm, like no, nothing gets VE except lighting. It's the only thing that gets VE in, well, from electrical scope, even in low voltage, right? Like, Oh, do you not want internet? Oh no. Okay. Like, <laughs> It's, it's it's because lights are lights, right? <laughs> in in the world, in the eyes of a builder and most owners, if it's fucking bright enough, it's fine. I, yeah, I yeah. had this this argument today on the way home from golfing with with my right hand man at the office about our architect, and he's sticking his nose into things again, and he's complaining that we're not putting these fancy pants, linear blah, blah, blahs in the lobby of this facility we're building. And I just said, who the fuck cares? The owner doesn't care. The patrons don't care. I sure as hell don't care. As long as we can hit the foot candle level of light that this dude needs to operate, nobody's looking at the damn fixture. Maybe well, I'm a little one-sided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, and that's just like, that's what I told these guys, you know, and again, some of them were too young to get the joke. All the old guys got it. Um, you know, it's like, cause we were on the second floor and we could see all the lobby lights, you know, and they had these nice, you know, six inch cylindrical, you know, three foot pendants at all the different heights and the metal caps on top and bottom. And it's like, those are expensive fixtures, right? Yeah. They're probably a couple thousand bucks. And then like, I'm like, yeah. So as you look over here, outside the right side of the airplane you can see these lights that you know nobody gives a shit about except for maybe the owner and the architect or the interior designer and you guys just got to figure out how to put these in you know like as an electrical engineer i would put cans and uh troffers in and call it a day but that's not how this works so for the rest of the building you know we'll get that done and taken care of and then from a schedule standpoint like it's not me or any of the engineers that are holding you up it is the owner and or architect and making a decision as to what aesthetic look and feel they want out of the lobby and your entrance spaces the rest of the building is taken care of they don't make those choices and here we are unless you're in new york or you know crook county and yes i said that intentionally uh in chicagoland like those are the two jurisdictions that the architects do a ton of stuff they don't really let engineers do anything and whatever. But th those are like the two jurisdictions where architects are going to hold up the project. They're doing way more scope than they should. And they aren't letting engineers just be an engineer, you know, like architects in New York are putting receptacle placements. It's like, are you serious? You know, like you don't, you have better things to do, like figuring out how to get out of this place before it catches on fire. You know, like that's your job. I digress. No, I, I could talk about that shit all day long, man. <laughs> I don't have like a general distaste for architects. I truly don't. But you got to know your limits and you got to know your audience and you got to know what you're being paid to design, right? 
a building in southeastern Michigan, you know, a, a light industrial building does not need to have the artistic flair of a building in downtown Chicago that's going to house, you know, some financial company or some shit like that. There's it's 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 different sides of the spectrum. You have to know your your sandbox and that you're playing in. And that's when I will lose my mind is when, you know, these guys just it, it, it just stymies progress. It costs people money and time and it just kills me. Yeah. And I mean, like to a point, I get it. Right. But on the other side of it, you know, much like you're talking about, especially for the type of projects you're talking about, light industrial storage facility, nobody gives a shit what the lobby looks like. You know, can they see the little kiosk to put their credit card in? Yes. Good. Okay. Got it. Move on. Uh, and then for light industrial, it depends. Like, you know, what are they bringing clients through is just, just a workspace and it's a lobby because it's a lobby. You know, like you go in and you got two hallways and one goes left, one goes right, you know, like what, do we, you know, is there actual reception here or like, what are we doing? And it goes down to, you know, you take a $20 million building and then you're worried about $10,000 worth of fixtures. It's like, dude, just issue a, well, you don't know what shit costs, but give me an allowance number for the the lobby and we'll figure it will give you another six months to figure out what fixture you want to put in here. You know, we, we can deal with this after bid day to, you know, figure that out. If you're that stuck on it and it, you're going to delay this two weeks on a fixture choice, get out of here, you know, like that. Well, delays that's, ex that's exactly it. Right. And that they don't know what the hell this shit costs usually. So fine. You want to, you want to put 50 grand in lighting upgrades. We can work with that all day long. And then, like you said, we can, we can filter those decisions back to the architect or the designer when the time is appropriate. Don't hold me up on the front end of a project because you're stomping your feet because my design build electrician included fixtures that you don't agree with on your, your grand vision in your head, right? Let's, let's get past that. We'll deal with it later. And it's for a 2000 square foot lobby, you know, it ain't for the 200,000 square feet behind it, you know, like, and that's, again, it's like scope of decisions. And again, in your world, like you get a lot more uh, leeway in that, right. To, Hey, can we just do a budget number for this and like move on? Um, and to have those conversations, you know, where you control the projects in like the traditional design bid build world, like that had to be done. Like there's no oh, yeah. way to, to not do that and not figure it out and not do it as soon as possible. And this is even like with owners and architects in, uh, well, and really the interiors folks, cause they don't work on a project till fucking CDs, but like you end up, I mean, it wrecks our world as the, the electrical guys because in, interiors really only affects architecture and then electrical. That's about it. You know, it doesn't really mess with the mechanical guys. It doesn't mess with the plumbing guys. It messes with like, oh, you made this room black. Why? You know, like, <laughs> oh, we need more floor boxes for all this, you know, uh, systems furniture that you're going to put in. Well, okay. Let me make, let me go talk to the structural guy and make sure we can do this. I'm going to Swiss cheese this floor. All right. You know, like that's where it starts to like go when you start to do these like furniture systems and everything's got power in them, you know, cause it doesn't just magically appear because we don't have those boxes yet. And so, you know, from that standpoint, like 
you got to wire all this stuff. Like you've got to get it from somewhere, from a panel to that. And you're going to put it in the middle of a floor and yeah, no shit. You don't want raceway on the ceiling and you don't want an umbilical from the ceiling or like, <laughs> you know, so, okay, we're doing four boxes and we're coming up from the floor below to do this. You know, we got two penetrations. If you want the breaker on the same floor, you know, like those are all the thought processes that go into this that, you know, you as the GC have to go through, that the electrician has to go through, that the, you know, concrete guys got to go through to make sure that we can do all the penetrations and stack out their rebar. And, you know, it's all the stuff that nobody thinks about until, you know, oh shit, what do you mean we don't have a floor box? Yeah. And it goes both ways. Cause I also have had arguments with my electricians before who, yes, it's design build and they get a lot of leeway on their own design. But then when I get into the middle of a construction project and I walk into the conference room, that's supposed to hold, you know, 200 people. And I say, huh, where are the floor boxes going? And they look at me like, it's not on the drawings. Like, okay, guys, now we have a problem, right? You're you, Mr. Electrician, we're, we're granted the ability to design this project and to set up the budgets. What in the flying fuck do you mean there's not a floor box or 10 of them in a conference room? Like that's pretty normal and standard. It's not, it's not anything outlandish, right? We don't have the zero point energy available quite yet where we can just tie into all these, these electrons moving around and, and power our shit. So we go both ways, right? You know, it's gotta be functional that, and that's, if I were to ever be an architect, first of all, I would hope you would shoot me first. But if I were, I would be a functional architect, right? The stuff has to work for the end user. Outside of that, you know, I'm, I get the fluffy, I get it. You got to have it look nice. It's got to be comfortable. It's got all these things. However, there's a lot that could just be battleship gray when people spend too much time, you know, painting it fuchsia. And again, it goes back to, right, you're doing light industrial projects, you know, ANSI 67 is good color, you know, like it, it works. And then, you know, or white or, you know, pick a neutral tone, right? Like it's fine. Gray's good. And uh, you just move on. And again, if somebody wants to come back through and do it or whatever, right, paint's fairly cheap, you know, <laughs> in the scheme of things for those projects to do it. And again, it goes to, I mean, and this is, it, it's always been interesting to me, right? The balance between like the design piece and then, you know, the insulation part of it. And with, when you really combine those two, where you have that engineer record on it, and then the, you know, with all the design bid build stuff where we got hammered if we didn't have anything in the drawings, and then all the ingenuity and creativity that come with a design build contractor, to be able to merge those two. I mean, that's where you really get the synergies because you bring all the best design shit is on the drawings to that point, you know, like everything is thought of. And then it's like, and then the contractor can execute it. You know, all the fab team can execute with their design build stuff. And so you get all the best of both worlds. Cause often it's exactly what you talked about it's not on the drawings well you're responsible for the drawings you're still in contractor world you know an engineer separate from contractor and you're not thinking of them as you are both yeah that's just it that's why true design build works right it's a cohesive team of 
all of the different disciplines that need to be involved and none of them that don't. That That's why it works. That, that's, that's design build 101 right there. You folks heard it for free. Yeah. Well, and I've, I've been a big fan of it for a long time, you know, but doing it right. It's the, the hard part. Um, and last thing that I'll mention and talk about uh, as I'm going and getting more art or engineering licenses for different states as projects come up and we're going after uh, a lot more now is man, the engineering discipline and architecture discipline, it's, it has a big moat around it, right? If you want to be a contractor, sure. You got to take some tests. You got to sit through some courses, but it's not like unsurmountable to go and get your contractor's license. And that's in like the, you know, Republic of California here where if they make it ungodly to get anything done. So, you know, I'm sure in Michigan, you pay a fee and sign your name and they give you a license, you know, they're thereabouts. Uh, well, ironically, Michigan is one of the few States that actually has no commercial builders license period. <laughs> Try that on for size. There you go. So, well, yeah, let's see all the easier for payoffs to happen in Detroit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I digress. Uh, so for in construction, right. To be a contractor, it's not like ungodly to go and get any of this stuff to be an architect engineer, right. And we're the only disciplines that have to sign and seal anything in like any discipline, right. Like automotive doesn't have to do anything. Like I've talked about this before, like most every other industry, you don't have to sign and seal drawing. Nobody is responsible for anything uh, when it comes down to it. So in architecture and engineering, you're going to school for four or five years, you're working for four or five years, you're taking tests for this, you know, architects take five or seven tests now um, for them to get licensed. Engineers, we just have our two, one at graduation, one at after four years. Then you have to have for engineering, you have to have five engineers uh, recommend you. And then all those, you know, referrals and stuff follow you. So I bring this up and walking you through this, mainly to note that because there is a moat around it, and then we're, I mean, there's still a push to send, you know, people to school for, you know, doctor, engineer, uh, not so much lawyers, but we still turn those guys out. Um, so you have these professional degrees, right? CPA, uh, doctor, lawyer, engineer, architect. And with that turnout, you've, you've still got the professional side of it, but you don't have as many going into getting their PEs. Like out of my class of 50 um, electrical engineers, there are two of us that are maybe three that are PEs out of it, um, you know, that are doing anything. One works in a steel plant, one works in a pulp mill, and then me, right? Like that's it. So one out of 50 electrical engineers is licensed in doing stuff, right? Hmm. I and wouldn't so, have guessed that. Well, again, that all in electrical engineering that includes all the guys that went and just their plant engineers, right? They're working at a manufacturing facility doing whatever. They're doing electronics and communications. They're working at Texas Instruments on, you know, microchip sets. They're working in, you know, all these various industries, right? The amount of people that go into power systems specifically and, you know, building engineering is like, you know, again, 2%. So then you have, I mean, there's more mechanical guys. But again, it's very small and then it's the field isn't necessarily, it's growing somewhat, but I, I don't know what the numbers are, right? Those, they're not super transparent and how many folks are retiring at the top end and then how many we come in. 
But my guess is that the industry is shrinking of licensed professionals. So it creates that moat around it. And, you know, you mentioned like it going away. I don't ever, I don't foresee that because of how entrenched the permit office is and their, you know, fee structure, how entrenched, you know, signing and sealing stuff is, how nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. And therefore having, you know, somebody sign off on drawings, I don't think that's ever going to go away because of the inherent risk and responsibility that we end up taking on these projects that I don't. I don't see how you'd replace that without very drastic overhaul of the entire like system to put a building together and a building project. Um, it's just a unique observation. I don't have a solution for it, but it goes to show like how valuable like those professional degrees are. So again, it's going to be a job security piece for the next generation much like everything else, you know, working with your hands, having a skill is one of those having your engineering credentials and your seal. Cause you know, like you can't go and get one without 10 years of investment, you know, in it. Right. Right. So interesting, interesting points, man. It's uh, I don't know, man, like things are going good. Like on the whole, you know, it's, we're still moving and shaking and we're getting, meetings with uh, very large companies that want to speed up their production, speed up how they do things faster to market. You know, they want to integrate more of their design and um, everything else that they do. You know, they've got architects in-house, process people in-house, structural in-house, civil in-house, you know, they just, and again, they're doing billions of dollars of projects. So when you start to integrate the the full team together, it's just amazing what, what these guys can do. And, you know, that leads to other opportunities with other clients and just speed to market, man. That's what it's all about, man. That's good stuff. I wish you the best in that. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to hear about some more details here coming up on, on future shows. Yeah. To a point, you know, some of this <laughs> got to keep some, uh, some of the secrets behind, uh, gotta stay outside of that NDA, but I get it closed doors, but yeah, man. Um, outside of that, any, any last words on your part for today's show? No, man. Um, go check out our YouTube site, everybody. It is uh, it is growing slowly but surely. And uh, again, if, if you want to ask us some questions to put on the show or you have some guests that you want to see on the show, or if you have the stones yourself to come on the show, get in touch with one of us. Um, we're kind of remodifying the studio here at HQ2 so that we're going to start doing some, some live, actual live in-person uh, interviews. So if you're in the Southeast Michigan area and you want to actually get on the hot, hot seat, um, reach out and we'll make it happen. Other than that, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of the Construction Corner podcast. And until next time.